Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Everyday Politics and Democracy in Africa episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast, an associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. We have been off for a couple of weeks as it was spring break at UW, and we've also been working to retool a few things at the podcast. So moving forward, we are likely to do episodes every other week from now on and invite more guests on to participate starting today. So to help co-host today's discussion, I'm joined by Morgan Wack, a PhD student in political science and frequent podcast producer and co-host of our Political Economy Forum podcast series. Hi, Morgan. How's it going? Good, James. Thanks for having me. As always, listeners can find this episode and previous episodes on our anchor page, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts by searching for Neither Free Nor Fair. Now, in previous episodes, we have discussed extensively the political and procedural challenges to holding free and fair elections in a formal sense, not only in countries that have been considered democracies for a long time, but countries whose democracy is still emerging. In today's episode, I wanted to extend our focus beyond these essential institutional components to engage with the day-to-day realities of democratic politics, including what we might consider informal democracy. Often, I wonder if we make everything about politics when we really shouldn't, whether the problem is everything really is about politics, but we ignore that and make it about something else. Well, that's a great lead in for today's guest, James. We're excited to have with us Jeffrey Pauler. Jeff is an assistant professor of political science at the University of San Francisco, and he's written extensively on informal democracy, everyday politics, and urbanization, especially in Africa, including in his book, Democracy in Ghana, Everyday Politics in Urban Africa, and a number of other articles on the subject. Jeff is the chair of comparative urban politics related group for the American Political Science Association. Jeff and his colleague, senior project associate at the Trust for Public Land, Philip Dubé, also distribute the weekly newsletter, This Week in Africa, which is a roundup of news related to democracy, development, and daily life across the continent. You can find it at thisweekinafrica.tumblr.com. This newsletter is an important public service to students of contemporary African politics around the world, and we encourage our listeners to sign up for it. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Hi, Morgan and James. It's great to be here. So, Jeff, when we talk about elections and democracy, I think people quite rightly think that we mean these big, broad, all-encompassing, yet very formal institutions of government. However, I think scholars spend much less attention on how people experience politics, often informally. And your work is an important correction to that. So first, tell us what you mean by everyday politics, and what does your research suggest about what everyday politics means to the citizens of the countries you study? Yeah, so to me, everyday politics is the institutional context of daily decision making in a, in a neighborhood, in a very local space. Basically how people act, think, and feel about power on a daily basis. So on the one, thing, one hand, everything in our social lives is about politics, but it is not necessarily uh, the politics that we often think about, the elections, the Congress, the presidency. Instead, um, I argue that we need to expand what we consider to be the political, the power dynamics that affect our daily lives, things like what happens in our schools, on our streets, at our stores. And a big part of this is to consider how uh, people in power make us feel and how individuals use their status and authority to control others and their situations. So I think what's unique about my book is that politicians and political parties are actually central to the daily lives of people, and they cannot be separated from people going about their everyday business. Well, Jeff, this is very dangerous because I I feel as though you're sounding like Michel Foucault and his ideas about governmentality applied to everyday politics in Africa. Is that an accurate description or are you a little bit less uh, Foucauldian than that? Well, I, I think we, uh, it, it, to some sense, you know, uh, politics is everywhere. It extends out in a very Foucauldian sense. But uh, in this book, I am really interested in some of the classic political science concepts like elections, like campaigns, but um, understanding that those are rooted in people's daily lives. So um, I don't build off uh, Foucault too much, but uh, uh, he's definitely um, you know, uh, there in the background, so to speak. 
And not that there's anything wrong with Foucault either. I think I'm, I'm just wondering if this might be our first Foucault reference in the podcast, which I really like. Um, so, but let me ask you then, you know, Foucault was into grand narratives for sure, you know, power, um, things like that. Does your work or your thinking about everyday politics suggest that we should really just kind of reject grand narratives in terms of like democracy with a big D or corruption with a big C? Because once you get down to the everyday or the day-to-day, those grand narratives tend to just really be maybe analytic lenses that academics use, but don't really have resonance in people's daily lives versus an alternative way to get down in the weeds on people's daily lives, in which case those grand narratives may just be, you know, at best incomplete, if not sort of mischaracterized. I mean, yeah, so to me, these grand narratives are absolutely important. They're things that uh, shape people's uh, histories, their traditions, their understandings. But I'm more interested in how these grand narratives um, actually work in uh, the things that uh, a lot of us scholars are interested in, like mobilizing people to the polls, um, uh, getting uh, uh, services distributed to their communities. And what I noticed in my research is that uh, these, uh, you know, kind of grand narratives, the institutions that have formed over uh, a long period of time. In fact, I date uh, some of uh, my findings uh, before colonialism, uh, w- what kind of shapes power dynamics in my cities. Um, but they, they take shape in very uh, uh, things that we care about for development, like how communities get streetlights in their communities, how, why some communities have security of tenure while others don't. Why some uh, you know, voters are restricted at the polls where, whereas others are not. So I really am interested in the nitty gritty of politics and the nitty gritty of kind of formal politics, but I don't think you can understand formal politics without understanding um, I, you know, some of these longer grander, grander narratives that um, have taken shape over time. So speaking of those cities that you mentioned and building on that, one of your main motivations in your research is to bring attention to the challenges facing urban populations in the developing world, specifically in Africa, as well as to detail just how quickly the region is urbanizing. Can you explain the broad trends of urbanization in Africa that have occurred in recent decades? Yeah, I mean, so Africa is becoming an urban continent. And I think just that in and of itself is a grand transformation. We've often thought about Africa as a rural continent. So when we think about development, we think about agriculture, we think about starvation and food security in the sense of not having enough food and kind of rural challenges. Um, When we think about uh, politics, we think about rural homelands. And, um, you know, Africa is changing. The more and more people are living in cities. So the continent is now majority urban. Uh, and this is a rapid shift. In 1950, uh, only about 33 million Africans lived in cities, and now uh, uh, estimates are over 450, and estimates suggest that um, by, uh, uh, in just a couple of decades, uh, it will be approaching 1 uh, billion people. Um, it's the fastest, the, the region is the fastest rate of urbanization uh, in, the, in the world today. Um, the cities are huge, so more than 65 cities have more than 1 million people. Um, and all of this is taking place at a, a very specific uh, demographic boom where uh, the population is extremely young um, and uh, they are moving to cities and in need of jobs, uh, healthcare, and education. Um, so just to give you a sense, 60% of Africans are under 25 uh, years of age. And there's many reasons for this, but I think it points to the importance of cities uh, moving forward. Do you think these two parallel trends, this urbanization and this demographic shift play a big role in the concept of everyday politics that you talk about? Maybe you can discuss that. Yeah, so certainly uh, in the spaces that I worked in, uh, kind of high, highly dense, uh, often overcrowded spaces, um, uh, lots of these uh, places were migrant settlements. People are um, demanding basic goods and services. And one of the reasons for this is that as people move to cities, the government um, cannot keep up with that demand. So people are really forced to deal uh, with um, uh, uh, these challenges on their own. So on the one hand, everyday politics is uh, 
you know, manifest in um, securing basic goods and services, um, at least in the context of urban Africa. So Jeff, I think this is, it's almost like a, a puzzle in a lot of ways because the density of urban spaces suggests that for the government, the provision of public services, like if we think of trash removal or street lighting or clean water and sanitation should actually be easier to provide, right? Because they're doing it over a smaller like ge geographic space as well as it's more densely populated as opposed to having to go very far away. Particularly if we're talking about the capital city, like literally the seat of government is there. But it often seems like in African cities, the services in the urban areas are actually worse in a lot of ways than in rural areas. Can you kind of walk us through, I mean, first of all, is that sort of true? Is that a mischaracterization? But also why it is so hard to provide services in the capital cities? I mean, yes, these governments are, are relatively poor compared to rich governments, but they're not incapable of providing things like electricity if they wanted to. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the main uh, challenges is that there is just a resource shortage. So governments have to decide who they're going to allocate resources to. And a lot of these uh, uh, programs of ser service provision um, are heavily politicized for this um, uh, uh, for this reason. Now, on the one hand, uh, rural areas are, uh, they, they just face different challenges. So sanitation is not as much of an issue, but electricity provision and water uh, provision are. So I think it's really important to kind of think about, you know, the difference between provision and management. Um, so in, in my case, it, it's easier to provide resources to urban areas, to different neighborhoods, because it's closer, there's more people in a smaller uh, 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 space, but it's not necessarily uh, easy to manage those services. And that management really um, is shaped by kind of local concerns, uh, issues of trust, issues of leadership. And we find that in urban spaces, tr trust is often um, uh, uh, much lower, uh, leadership is much more fragmented, um, I think this is a big challenge. In rural areas, you have uh, closer alignment between traditional authorities, members of parliament, different uh, uh, social groups. Whereas in urban areas, you have lots of different types of people, lots of overlapping authorities. And these authorities are often formalized. You have uh, distinctions between the central government and uh, the local government. And all of that in my story gets played out uh, uh, in everyday situations. And, uh, you know, I would argue that paying attention to the everyday and, and everyday politics uh, helps us understand that fragmented authority. So can you walk us through an example? So let's say I'm a rural Ghanaian. I live in the northern part of the country. I live in Tamale, which is a, a northern region of, of the, the country. And I decide I'm going to move to Accra, the capital city. And I, I arrive in Accra. If I need something like water and sanitation. Walk us through like the reality of how uh, a, a recent uh, arrival to a city is going to negotiate that and figure that out and actually obtain the service that they need. Yeah, so I worked in a, a neighborhood called Old Padama, which is the largest squatter settlement um, in Ghana. And I'll just give you an example of someone who uh, arrives in this neighborhood. So uh, someone from uh, Tamale will come to this neighborhood and need to find uh, a shack. And they will usually settle uh, in a little area with people from their hometown, from around their hometown. And that area is kind of governed by a landlord who kind of controls that so there might be 20 or 30 shacks that are under um, the jurisdiction of this local leader. Now, this local leader needs to get water and electricity uh, to his, um, you know, 20 homes. Will make certain linkages with political parties, uh, with uh, electricity companies, in order to get those services provided. Now, I will say, because Ghana is a democracy, there is this belief that everybody should have access to water, everyone should have access to electricity. So it's very hard to kind of cut off that water, cut off that electricity, which is one reason why uh, people can, you know, m make their 
livelihoods and match their livelihoods. Now, this person uh, will, if they're uh, a man, will you know find work in the re the informal recycling industry called scrap dealing. If they're a woman, they'll often find work in the marketplace, either as headquarters called kaiye or as um, sellers of goods in the market. And um, they usually pay for their services on a daily basis, daily basis. So for trash collection, they will pay maybe one or two CDs uh, every few days to a local um, headporter who will take their garbage to a more centralized spot. So there's a whole kind of informal market in place. Some of the most powerful uh, people in these uh, neighborhoods are the ones who run uh, private showers and private toilets because everyone uh, needs to go to the bathroom and you pay you know, uh, a certain amount of money uh, for these services. And it's a very entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial activity. Um, these people who gain kind of power and wealth also form strong political connections with the political parties. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You can see how, um, as James said, although you have the advantages of kind of agglomeration in these urban spaces, the rate of change is just so high that even if you had the capacity at one moment in time, you know, a year later, and it's going to be out of shape. Very interesting. So what would you say differentiates what you describe as the everyday politics of urban neighborhoods in a country like Ghana from the traditional procedural descriptions of democratic politics? Yeah, so, um, you know, everyday politics is universal. Um, it's something that uh, people in um, all parts of the United States, all parts of Europe uh, experience. Um, I think even the way that I think about everyday politics, the ways that politicians make someone feel during you know, the COVID pandemic, we see that that's actually crucial to whether they decide to contribute to the public good. Um, so I do think these things are uh, universal. Um, what we traditionally think democratic politics to be, the parties, the politicians, the rule of law, elections, political campaigns, Congress, um, are rooted in space and they're contested on the streets of these neighborhoods. Um, so I'll just give you uh, one kind of example. Uh, during political campaigns in Ghana, um, there are all sorts of different kind of local authorities who attach themselves to the different political parties. You know, there's a traditional fetish priest who is that fetish priest for the National Democratic uh, Congress political party. There is um, the local scrap dealers association who will, um, you know, make it their, um, you know, kind of effort to support one side of the other. And I think um, the focus on kind of face-to-face -face interactions um, and the importance of that uh, is something that dis distinguishes itself from the more formal uh, procedural um, uh, uh, way of doing politics. So Jeff, help me understand then the similarities and differences between everyday politics and kind of what you're describing in Accra versus, you know, say Seattle or San Francisco. So what I'm thinking of is, and, you know, having been in Ghana during election seasons, I mean, I do think in a lot of ways, this is true of Kenya as well. It's like politics is almost like a sport. Like everybody is on a team and everybody kind of signals the team they're on, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, if you're an NDC party member, you wave the NDC flag. If you're NPP, you wave that flag. But in the United States, like if I think of local service provision, if I think of a school or I think of going on the subway or the bus, you know, in a lot of ways it's illegal, but at the very least it's impolite to be sort of the, the people providing services signaling anything like a political allegiance. I mean, people can wear t-shirts if they're Democrats or Republicans, but you don't wanna, you don't wanna uh, your local school to be waving the Democrat or Republican flag. So then, how, it, I mean, is that is that a fair, like what is then the difference between how these things, I mean, are they just politicized but not signaled in the United States? Or is the everyday sort of not political in the sense of being something about a political party. It is political in the sense of whether or not the government is doing it, but it's not relevant which political party that government uh, is, is, is a member or, or whoever's in control versus in Ghana, it really does matter actually. It's not just the government as some sort of you know, for, foreign entity. It's like, no, it really matters whether that government is led by your party and you signal that they're your party. And if you're not, then you're out. If you are, you're in. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the major differences is that in uh, Ghana and other places, um, I've done some research is that uh, those personal connections and those experiences in the everyday are in, are an important part of respect and social recognition. So what I mean by that is politicians, leaders need to signal that they care about their constituents. And they do that by engaging in conversation, by going to visit these places. And I'm not sure that in the US, uh, we rely on personal face-to-face -face interactions to feel like the government respects us or recognizes us. Now, some might argue that in fact, that is an important part of politics and you do need to feel that the government respects and recognizes you. Um, uh, and, and we can see what happens when that kind of breaks down. Um, but I think in the places where I've worked, uh, you know, it's an important part of legitimating that you're a good ruler. And I think in the United States, for various reasons, we have different ways that leaders can uh, legitimate um, their rule, different ways of showing that they respect um, and recognize um, their constituents. They have different patterns of communication um, that are less reliant on kind of face-to-face -face interactions. Um, now, you could argue that in the end, all people care about is getting the goods and improving their lives. And I do think that um, there's some truth to that. I mean, I think that politicians in Africa can gain the respect of their constituents, even across ethnic boundaries, if they perform well. Um, I think we need to see more evidence of that uh, across the continent. Jeff, that sounds to me exhausting for the politicians. I mean, in, in a, in a, if I wanted to be a politician, if I were an office-seeking politician, I might prefer a system where I can just sort of give a press release or send a tweet or do a press conference and then not have to deal with the sort of, you know, press the flesh, being on the street, going house to house kind of thing. Um, so it sounds like politicians in Ghana have a lot more of that that is required of them than perhaps politicians in the United States. I, I mean, that's obviously, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't know, we would have to compare that, you know, um, but I do think it's exhausting. I do think politicians feel, um, you know, like they want to just focus on uh, writing laws and getting them passed. And instead they have to go visit communities. I think moreover, they, it's very expensive to be a politician. Um, in, uh, in Africa, there's a lot of good research coming out on this that, you know, they spend so much of their money. Uh, if there were other ways to kind of fund campaigns, if there are other ways to fund uh, basic service provision, um, you know, by, you know, everyone would feel a little better. I mean, the flip side of that is without doing some of that work in the United States, we realize that, you know, a lot of, you know, the sound public policies that, economically sound and the, the scientifically sound public policies don't really go anywhere. And we're seeing that in this country with, um, you know, things that we thought would just be kind of straightforward uh, uh, public policies coming down from the government. People don't trust them on the ground. People uh, are listening to, you know, the intermediaries that they respect or uh, they are politically aligned with. So perhaps in other contexts, uh, we need to learn from, uh, uh, you know, politicians in Ghana or the successful politicians in Ghana about how to really communicate more efficiently and effectively. And I was thinking, I mean, what I was thinking of specifically is the show Veep. I don't know if you ever watched Veep, but the the Julia Louis-Dreyfus character who plays Selena Meyer, who's the vice president in the U.S., like every time she has to meet a voter, it's just like so trying and exhausting for her. Like she, like Paul, I think American politicians, like probably a lot of them truly hate having to meet actual voters face to face. It, it always is sort of like a funny point in the show, but it's like, you know, I thought I was thinking that when you were talking about Ghanaian politicians sort of having to be there, I was like, God, that just sounds exhausting to me. Like I don't, it, and it sounds inefficient too, because like you said, if they're there doing the sort of press the flesh face to face, it, it means that they then have less time to do things like write national legislation or, or pursue other things that they could devote resources to, as well as then excluding people who just don't have the resources or time to be able to devote for run to run for office in that way. Yeah, and it really shapes the kind of power dynamics at the national level as well. So let me just give you 
a powerful example. So I worked in Ododio constituency and one of the member of parliament there who's uh, been in office for uh, several terms, uh, Milanti Vanderpoy, uh, when the NDC was in government, he, he was uh, minister of sport. And you might say, okay, minister of sport is, you know, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, maybe the 15th most important minister. But in Ghana, that's an extremely important cabinet position because um, it's directly tied to the youth. There's tons of youth who care about sport. It's tied to revenue flows and revenue sources. It's tied to international opportunities, the ability to go, uh, you know, travel globally. So, you know, when we think about what matters to people in their lives, it really shapes the positions of power, how the Ministry of Sport might be in a more important cabinet position than, um, you know, the Minister of Trade and the Environment or something. Um, now, um, you know, all that's up for debate and each, uh, you know, uh, party kind of delegates resources in their own way. But I think that's just a telling example of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, why we need to rethink, um, you know, the formal politics uh, uh, with a lens to the everyday. Yeah, that's a fascinating example. One of my most um, memorable um, experiences in Ghana, I spent a little bit of time there a few years ago, was uh, the family I was staying with had three TV channels on, on their small television, and two of them were dedicated to the Black Stars, the Ghanaian national team, 24-7. The, the other soccer channel team. was just kind of, yeah, the, Black, the national soccer team, and the, the, the other channel was mostly soccer news anyway, but then they threw in some actual political news on top of that. Um, so kind of getting back to maybe the Foucauldian aspects here of, of the power relationships and the politics that you mentioned, you talk about some of the possible benefits that could accrue from this type of face-to-face -face interpersonal interaction. I'm wondering if you think that this does lead to a better or at least a more representative um, form of policymaking in terms of what politicians are actually led to believe about the people within their constituencies. Are they speaking with people who are of you know, the upper echelon of society or you know, of means in such a way? Or are they speaking with really everyday people because they all have an equal vote? Is that how it plays out? Yeah, so I, I'll just clarify, like I don't think a focus on the everyday or informal uh, is, should be uh, kind of counteracted versus you know, formal democracy. I actually think they should work in tandem a lot better and they need to work and kind of be mutually accommodating. So it's not an either or thing. So on the one hand, you know, there, the kind of informal politics that take place, there's a lot of personal uh, interactions. There's a lot of clientelism um, and, and, you know, kind of patronage relationships, all things that seem to be anti-democratic and kind of bad. The positive in this story, I think, is that um, this interaction, this engagement um, can be an important avenue for citizens to get their voices heard, for constituents and representatives to deliberate and talk about issues and kind of update each other's beliefs, um, and then hopefully get their opinions reflected in public policy. And when this works well, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing because you see so many politicians who are really frustrated um, and nervous about going to the communities because they're like, oh, I'm gonna face all this um, anger and resentment. But it also gives them a chance to kind of explain why they're making the decisions that they are. It's a chance for them to explain the political process. Like, you know, you, in this neighborhood, this is why we're making decisions like we are at the national level. And I think that back and forth process um, is something that we need more of, you know, kind of across, you know, many different types of democracies, but certainly in uh, younger, newer democracies where, you know, there's a lot of political learning that has to take shape. Now, I'll be honest, this is, that's kind of a normative ideal. And I, I think that it's useful to look at this these face-to-face -face interactions as something that can bring forward incredible change. It's not always like that. And I would say most of the case, it's not like that. Well, but Jeff, I think what you're doing is, I mean, kind of contra Foucault, and I don't even know how we, why we keep dragging you through the Foucauldian mud. <laughs> we keep trolling you with Foucault, but anyway, is that you're describing actually, I think a way to upend the, what might otherwise be entrenched power and interest because 
I would guess that the more that um, politicians have to face their constituents and constituencies discuss or constituents discuss things with each other and politicians, you know, that is a mechanism to undo structural elements of a system that are otherwise either foreign to the constituents or frankly for the leaders, foreign to them about their constituents, right? So, you know, I could see a member of parliament just maybe just being very sexist, right? Just in general, for whatever reason. And then they go to a community meeting where there are women from the community as well as men. And then there's not being able to perpetuate that um, th those, you know, their language in that way or whatever, because the people aren't going to put up with it. I mean, you know, Ghanaians are like everybody. They're not going to put up with, you know, their the leaders saying these things about them to their faces right there at the meeting. And so it seems like what you're describing is a way to upend things that are, you know, fundamentally entrenched and powerful. And if that's true, then I guess my, my question is why, why aren't Ghanaian politicians trying to undermine this? Like, why aren't they trying to um, uh, uh, try to get, a, get away from this system because ultimately it could threaten them individually, their ability to get reelected, or it could threaten their interests, however that's defined, if it's, if it's entrenched. Yeah, I mean, I think the easy answer is that uh, this is how you, uh, politicians have learned that this is how you win elections in Ghana is that you have to maintain close ties to the grassroots you have to organize um, locals, you have to organize communities. Now, I don't think they've taken that next step to having this like kind of solid deliberation, this solid um, conversation. And um, part of that might be um, arrogance, part of that might be ignorance, um, just not knowing that that's really what works. Um, I think there's evidence starting to come out by scholars that, um, you know, uh, town hall meetings can really help democracy. Having, you know, TV campaigns or TV debates, it's not just about, you know, debating on television. It's also about what people talk about after that TV debate. And you start seeing some of those interventions uh, happening. Um, and I think it, it, it takes a long time to change, you know, how things work. Um, and, and um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens moving forward. But, um, you know, every four years, I would say like Ghana's kind of formal political process in some ways gets stronger. Uh, the courts, you know, maintain their independence. The electoral commission maintains its independence. There's often challenges. Um, and a lot of this is because of the behind the scenes activities uh, in the situations that I described. Yeah, so you've discussed kind of the linkages between politicians and the communities, which are very robust in, in Ghana. Perhaps you can speak a bit more to the opinion leaders, what you call opinion leaders, who aren't politicians in the Ghanaian context. How do they kind of exercise their influence and who are they? Yeah, so um, I, I use the term opinion leaders because this is how um, locals uh think about these leaders, at least in the, that's what they call them, at least in the English language. So it, it's, a, it's a term used to describe uh, local community leaders who gain admiration and respect from their constituents by accumulating wisdom, but also providing advice. And by doing that, they achieve a status and reputation um, based on these characteristics. Um, secondly, in the urban case, they tend to control and kind of dominate uh, urban space. So they're the people who uh, uh, run some of the local businesses who have connections uh, to jobs. Um, and what I find is that the type of opinion leader kind of varies across neighborhoods. So sometimes you have pastors and imams who are very influential. Other places you have teachers and uh, um, and landlords. And then, you know, in kind of squatter settlements, you have uh, scrap, scrap recyclers and slumlords um, who are very influential. But I would say um, that the, the, the kind of important thing is that politicians are actually expected to become opinion leaders first. So it's a little uh, different from what we're seeing uh, in other cases where you can gain this massive national following and then that just kind of uh, legitimates you as a political candidate. Um, 
you know, um, you are expected to kind of build your base uh, through, um, you know, kind of providing advice and uh, recognition, at, you know, at the grassroots. So if a lot of these opinion leaders are tied pretty strongly to these local communities, when does this lead to zero-sum politics on behalf of representatives, and when does it lead to more collective action on behalf of larger groups? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is just um, when the uh, when the respect and uh, recognition extends beyond uh, just their narrow constituency, and I think uh, leaders make very kind of instrumental calculations of when they want to broaden that support base, and this is one place where I've seen just kind of formal democracy and competitive politics actually help extend uh, the authority base of an opinion leader. You might start off as a very narrow uh, kind of, um, you know, indigenous, almost like indigenous nationalist. So someone like uh, Nilanti Vanderpoor uh, in the case that I worked in um, was kind of known as a powerful family member um, in this very local indigenous space. And that's kind of how he gained power. Um, but because people kept moving into this area, people from the North, people from uh, other areas, he had to, um, you know, yes, he had to gain support from his religious followers. He's a Christian. So he has to, you know, have pastors on his side, but he realized that he had to go visit imams. He had to go visit, uh, chiefs and traditional authorities from people who, you know, came from areas, you know, outside of Tamale. And he was, you know, forced to expand uh, that base. So um, this is where you see kind of formal politics and informal politics interact, because it really depends on who's in your voting constituency. So how you redraw the lines, um, you know, how the gerrymandering process works can affect, um, you know, what, what, you know, what strategy you use as a leader. Is one of the things that they are sort of forced to do uh, manage social conflict from these potentially, you know, quote unquote, outside groups moving into their constituency. I mean, you discuss like a Christian having to have outreach to Muslims, for instance. Is there a lot of social conflict when new people come in and they have to sort of manage that as well? And then they, they leverage that to sort of be a local peacemaker between groups that would otherwise have disparate interests, but locally saying, you know, let's stay unified, let's stay one, let's, let's try to build bridges. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what you see um, in a lot of these communities. And um, I, I think one of the interesting things about uh, Ghana is that there's very high levels of tension during elections. You read about kind of low level uh, 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 electoral violence, but it never really um, escalates beyond a certain point. And I think a important part of that is the role of these local leaders, the role of the politicians um, kind of sitting outside of their party hat for a minute and, you know, trying to keep the peace. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot more to be learned about that process. Um, and Ghana provides a nice case because um, it often seems like, you know, tension is going to boil over and, you know, horrible things might happen. Um, but uh, these leaders quickly mobilize and meet with one another and are, um, you know, kind of figure it out at a local level. Do you think that's a Ghana specific thing? Because I think sort of the, the folk wisdom on rapid urbanizations, I mean, one aspect that a lot of scholars identify is precisely the social conflict that it can produce. So do you think that, that this is very specific to Ghana and trying to avoid that? Or do you think that this is probably a broader phenomenon, but maybe scholars haven't recognized it thus far? Um, I think the role of local leaders in mediating conflict is generalizable. I mean, I think that um, is important uh, everywhere. Um, I think the role of uh, kind of local land tenure issues um, and land tenure security is something that's important everywhere. I think what's a little unique about Ghana is that some of these local conflicts don't map neatly onto national level um, uh, political competition. And there's kind of a balance in uh, cultural, economic, and political power that dates back centuries. So it's not all one group or two groups who are de dominating all three. Um, and I think that's uh, really important. And scholars like Kathy Boone, Kathleen Klaus, 
and others have really written some interesting, you know, things about this in, in, in kind of explaining in cases like Kenya and uh, Cote d'Ivoire, where uh, some of these more local issues actually are not just local issues, they're inherently national level issues. In Ghana, um, the kind of national level issue has been this long two-party system uh, where kind of the wealthiest group and the culturally most important group has actually been out of political power for a significant uh, uh, time um, in both colonial and post-colonial history. Because of the ties in your framework between these formal and informal um, political aspects and these formal groupings, the most notable comparisons are usually other democracies in the region and elsewhere. And I'm wondering if you have a sense, you know, this isn't the aim of your work, what do these informal spaces look like in non-democracies, either in the region or elsewhere? Are these things we're overlooking because they aren't tied to formal politics or is there kind of an entirely different ecosystem because of these lack of formal linkages? Yeah, so, I mean, I've noticed very similar parallels in a lot of different spaces that I've worked across uh, different regions, even in very different contexts. I think um, I have a typology in my book about different settlement patterns and I pay attention to um, how different neighborhoods were settled. And really, I think it's important to think about who settled first and how. And I think certainly across uh, you know, the African continent, these are gonna look different in different places, especially in places where there's a big uh, kind of um, colonial settlement pattern. Ghana did not have a lot of um, you know, British settlers uh, it, it had some, but you know, not nearly as many as in um, Kenya, uh, Zimbabwe, and uh, you know, of course, South Africa. Um, and I think that's going to uh, shape a lot in terms of differences between kind of authoritarian versus local spaces. Um, I think in more authoritarian regimes, the state has a lot more power to kind of um, almost get rid of or demolish or wipe off neighborhoods off the map. Um, and they often use this through forced evictions and demolitions. In, you know, and in Ghana, there's a lot less ability to do that. In other democratic cases, there's much more kind of recourse to the rule of law. So you see in Kenya, um, there's you know, huge infrastructure projects that are going through kind of local informal spaces, but there is some level of civil society um, activity and uh, real law that's, um, uh, th that provides some rights to um, these poor populations. Um, and the final thing I would say is that in democracies, these uh, local residents are extremely powerful. Um, some new work by Noah Nathan shows that, um, you know, politicians and political parties go to, you know, they, they rely on these poor neighborhoods to win their elections. So they're gonna listen to them. They're going to um, engage in patron-client relationships with them. They're gonna deliver services to them because as you said, it's cheaper, more efficient and easier uh, to win them over. And you could say, well, that's bad, but you could also say that gives uh, you know, these poor citizens perhaps the only power that they have. That's great. So switching directions here slightly, there have been a number of studies and kind of just general opinion that a lack of focus on Africa, both in academia and in the general media, leads to deficient emphasis on the continent's diversity. And your newsletter stands out uh, as an excellent resource for overcoming these barriers. Can you tell us a bit about your newsletter and what you and your colleagues are aiming to do with it? Yeah, so um, Phil Dubé and I have been doing This Week in Africa for uh, over five years. And the goal was really to bridge the kind of policy uh, divide and the academic divide, to have a conversation between those two groups of people. Of course, we've also uh, brought in, uh, you know, uh, journalists and students and the general public who's interested in Africa to the conversation um, as well. Uh, it was really just a way to kind of curate the news, you know, you know, by an academic. So, so, you know, ideas that were important to me in the classroom when I kind of discuss Africa with my students, it really started uh, very basically with an email from my Gmail account to, you know, um, with 10 different links because 
every day I taught, I would say, oh, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? And my students were like, no, no. So every Friday, I just sent out uh, this little um, link. And it's kind of grown over time and it's kind of gained a following. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, the goal is to really, um, you know, create, spark this conversation between uh, policymakers and decision makers and uh, academics. And I, I think it's done that. I, I would also say that I think uh, the quality uh, of coverage um, in the past five years has really gone up. Uh, the voices of African journalists, of uh, you know, Africans in the policy community and in the international policy community has gotten um, much better. Um, so I just rely on uh, you know, what other people are doing. Um, and it's been fun for me to kind of keep up on uh, issues on the continent. Well, Jeff, I want to say, I think you're being a little bit bashful because I think, you know, for our audience, it's not that there aren't stories about Africa. It's that there isn't, you know, it's not, I mean, even if you read The Economist, there's, a, there's only still a couple pages devoted to any one region or something like that. And so I think for American students or really students anywhere to just get what that roundup is, is it, this is the source I go to every week for sure, because there just isn't that sort of thing that you would get um, with other types of, you know, other regions of the world that, that have this sort of coordinating mechanism. Um, and, and also I think, you know, Africa is a huge place. There is a lot of countries, there is a lot going on and your newsletter is fairly lengthy, which I think is, is one of its strengths. But it's, it's often, you know, students come to us and they're like, well, where can I learn about Africa? Like, that's an impossible question to answer. But your newsletter is, is the beginning of an answer. And I think, you know, I just want to express how important I think it is to have a resource for people to have something that's a little bit curated, but also still very serious. And then, of course, links to all these ways in which that they can kind of explore these things on their own a lot further. Well, well I appreciate that. I'm glad um, it's useful and I'm glad that uh, you think so highly of it because it, it's been a it's been a fun project it's kind of taken on a life of its own and um, you know I'm most kind of proud of its consistency we haven't missed a single Friday in um, you know five years um, so we'll, we'll continue that going. Well the other thing I like about it too is the news is now at such a level that like you know, when things are, you know, things have been flaring up in Ethiopia, for instance, recently. So it's like maybe CNN or somewhere or BBC will do a quote unquote Africa story, but it'll be the thing that flared up within the last couple of days, right? So it'll be Ethiopia, but it won't be kind of an expanded coverage. And it also won't be any of the positive news, okay? Any of the art, any of the policy, any of the, you know, this election went well, it's, it's always kind of the disaster story. And I think, I, I think, because there's so much going on and because any one news outlet is not going to be able to report on everything, people do get a very, it's not biased in terms of a slant, but they just get a biased selection of stories. And therefore the narrative then, if you try to spin, you know, connecting these stories, a lot gets lost. And I, you know, I've always regretted that. And I'm sure that's true of Latin America, I'm sure it's true of Europe and in other regions, but I think it's certainly true of Africa as well. Yeah, so maybe we can glean a little bit more insight that we don't already get uh, weekly from the newsletter. I would be curious to know, in the five years that you've been doing this, what has been kind of the largest surprise you've learned from having to dig into these things weekly and perhaps unearth stories that you wouldn't otherwise have encountered? I think one of the most uh, kind of exciting things for me is um, making connections between the uh, kind of politics that are taking place. So you know, you know, you take uh, the NSARS movement in um, Nigeria. So there's this uh, incredible, uh, you know, problem with the police force uh, in Nigeria. So questions that we think about the role of the state, criminal justice. Um, but what doing the newsletter has enabled me to do is um, see how these movements kind of form at the grassroots, how people on the streets using social media, using art, using culture um, to kind of influence uh, these kind of very, you know, political conversations. And um, I, I guess I didn't really know that all that was happening. Um, I imagined it was because of my experience in Ghana, but you see that in so many different places. So, you know, um, it, it's been fun for me to, uh, to start reading the kind of policy 
um, articles about a, a, a certain event, what's happening in Ethiopia, what's happening uh, in Nigeria, what's happening in Burkina Faso, but bringing in this other dimension, the dimension of, uh, you know, local activists, local um, partisans, um, and, and kind of, ex you know, th that's a lot more different from the Africa that we get or we historically got in the New York Times that we got in The Economist. Um, and I, but I think a crucial part of the story, which comes back to this idea of everyday politics, or at least a focus on the daily life, a focus on um, the role of food, the role of music, the role of art, um, you know, and, and how that informs politics and how politics actually informs uh, those, uh, you know, kind of enterprises as well. Well, that's a perfect place to wrap up. So we'll ask you one final question. What lessons should we take away for democracy in the 21st century based on how you conceptualize and how we think about everyday politics? Yeah, I think uh, the most important thing is that democracy is not something that just takes place every four or five years. And I know this is obvious. We, we know this, but uh, we often think about, you know, democracy uh, during, you know, the election time, during campaigns. But we experience it and we also experience it, its erosion. I think this is a crucial point too, uh, in our daily lives and in everyday situ situations. And um, I think it's important that we focus on these spaces uh, if we really want to understand um, whether democracy is working or not, or um, whether it's becoming you know, deepened or strengthened or whether it's eroding. Um, and I think this is a generalizable concept that we should really consider um, all across the world. Excellent. Well, we just want to thank you again for joining us. And we point out for listeners that in the show notes, we'll include a link to your book as well as your other work on your website. And we will include a link to This Week in Africa and encourage all of our listeners to sign up if they haven't already. Thanks, Jeff. Great. Great. Thank you so much, James and Morgan. This was uh, really fun. And I'm uh, really excited about what you're doing with this podcast. And um, I'll continue to listen. Terrific. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.